0: first met our next guest Dante Ricci in Washington DC Um, he had expressed an interest in attending the Masters of Leading Sales Transformation and it coincided with the trip that I was making to Washington. Dante's background isn't typical of many of those that come on the program Um, he has a More a marketing background than a sales leadership background, but his area of SAP, which is working on global programs to help with generating leads uh, for the sales teams, is very crucial. And uh, he's seen through the course of his master's program many benefits from combining a knowledge of what sales leaders and sales managers require of marketing and through his knowledge of best practice in running market lead generation programs. I think what is particularly interesting about Dante's talk for us is his focus on working with virtual and cross-cultural teams. So I very much hope you can benefit, uh, as we've done, from the learnings from Dante in his quest and uh, really hope that you enjoy the benefits of his research. First of all, congratulations uh, on completing the master's. I know it was some time. It was fun celebrating that with you. And I wonder if we could go right back to the beginning of your research inquiry. And if you could just talk me through, you know, what what was it that made you um, focus on the topic
1: that you were interested in? Sure. Yeah, the the interesting thing about my topic, which was, managing a cross-functional team. And in this particular case, it's a go-to-market or a demand management team that's trying to build a sales campaign or a marketing campaign. And you may have some temporary and geographically dispersed team members and individuals from different backgrounds and cultures that have to come together and drive more interest and consequently, uh, consequently more revenue for a company's solutions. Oftentimes they put a leader in charge of this cross-functional team, demand management, sales team, go-to-market team, marketing team. And those leaders for that particular temporary team, and that temporary team could be two months, could be seven months, 10 months, doesn't really have a guidebook that they could use that's easily consumable, that's more like, I would call it a checklist, if you will. So when I lead a cross-functional team myself, there is project management, program manager, workbooks, there's different ways to, uh, and actually there's research out there for different behaviors and different actions, but I could not find one specific checklist that honed in on a cross-functional team uh, in this Particular situation in this context. Mm. I thought it was really interesting for me to try to solve that complicated task by incorporating my findings into an easily consumable, uh, I would say, yeah. a cheat sheet, if you will, or a checklist with some context behind that checklist so that it's easier for a cross functional team member or team manager to understand the behaviours and actions that need to take place to, to succeed and reach peak performance. So I wonder if I can get slightly off piece with my next question,
0: because um, I think the relationship between the demand gen side of the business and sales is sometimes fraught with, I, I don't know, tension, perhaps I'm, I'm not using the right word, you know, with salespeople who are is sometimes critical of the quality of leads coming through. <laughs> Am I right in saying that there is that tension? And I suppose the second question that follows on from that is, is that tension perhaps part of the reason why you wanted to look at, at making these cross-functional
1: teams work more effectively? There is absolutely a tension between marketing and sales and demand management leads particular account executives may want to focus in on a hyper uh uh, let's let's take the word hyper out of it but a more like a i would say a localized specific account structure with a persona of who they're selling to to meet a specific customized sales need whereas sometimes with demand management campaigns you have to scrape a little bit higher (laughs) you have to the the common denominator has to be another level higher than maybe an account rep or a sales lead may want because of the fact that your common denominator, if you're going to do a multi geographical demand manager campaign, or even within a local uh, campaign that you need to um, bring the messaging a little bit higher so that the sub markets combined into a larger market that, that you can tap into. And then you're wanting the, the, particular templates or content that they are offered to use with their particular accounts, the AE or the, the support for the AE to be able to localize it a little bit further. But there is definitely a tension there because sometimes it's just the direction, the strategy, and actually the, the actual tactical movements of a demand management campaign may not fit exactly where the AE needs to, for it to go and the AE is always strapped with time. They're, they're the owner. They need to own the relationship. They need to own the sales funnel. Mm-hmm. And they want uh, more of a customized or catered offering for them for their particular accounts. Mm-hmm. And and so the second part of your question was, is this part of the reasoning why I thought it would be a good topic? It is a part of a larger piece of pie because if you look at this particular slice you're always trying as somebody who supports the sales teams I'm always trying to help them with the most accurate contextual useful and uh, content and capability that the prospects and their customers need and that would resonate with them on the other hand I'm also trying to meet a larger audience a dispersed audience of multiple sales leads who have different use cases, different customer needs, and different ways of meeting their customers' needs. Uh, not, not necessarily different behaviors, but rather different content and different, um, a different vantage point of where they come into the account because they all have different needs. Well,
0: that's, uh, yeah, that's really, really interesting. And and the reason why you sort of chose this sort of research inquiry, I guess, was based on, you know, your own personal experience of some campaigns being very successful because they seem to be run in a really good way and others that haven't been. Um, so I don't know if you want to comment on, on, on that side of things.
1: Yeah, if you ask a sales rep, <laughs> if you ask a sales rep how many campaigns are successful and and how many drove leads that they could actually accept as opportunities and drive to revenue. Um, You're going to have a lot of, a lot of different opinions, many negative and many neutral, some positive, I would say less. So on the positive front for a lot of these sales campaigns, because of the fact that uh, especially in the digital world today with COVID, it's a tricky world in the digital world to, to try to, to uh, reach the, the hearts and minds of their particular customers without personal meetings and within personal meetings, are they really comfortable um, with net new contacts that we bring to them that are in different departments that they may not have developed relationships with. So it depends on the account executive and their mindset sometimes as to what that lead brings to them. But yeah, there's different levels of satisfaction. (laughs) I think it's, uh, you
0: know, f- with all the organizations that we work with, there's always this, it's a common requirement, I would say. <laughs> um, but there's always slightly this tension. But it's, it's also the holy grail, isn't it? If, if you can, you know, sort of find the answers to the most fe- effective way of using sort of marketing spend and demand gen, you know, to create the leads, then um, you're solving, I think, for many uh, Organisations, you know, quite a big problem. So I think it, it's been a fascinating research project uh, to read from that uh, from that perspective. So the title of your project you mentioned before is helping cross-functional team leaders achieve better results. Uh, so that's the topic. We know why you're concerned. So when you started to explore some of the research on the topic, I know that there's some journals, there's some papers, there's some people that have given you perhaps more insight than others. So I I would love you to maybe talk about when you started to open up the Pandora's box, I suppose, and and look at what's been done out there on this topic. Perhaps you could share, you know, who some of the key influences were in in your research uh,
1: approach. Well, there's, there's the academic research and there's some key influencers there and then there's some, influencers that i've seen over the years at my corporation and outside my corporation that i know have been successful or that are perceived outside outside in the look per- successful when they when they're leading cross functional teams so i took a a two pronged approach qualitative research where i tried to drive into some of the personal views of these or perspectives and points of view of these particular Super leads, if I call them that, um, but also looking at the research and seeing where the gaps were, and uh, I'm trying to think of the uh, particular person in per, or persons.
0: There was one in particular that I think you you drew quite a lot of um, uh, quite a lot of influence. One, which was, is it pro? in which there were sort of five factors that. That's know, right. Um, so, so to me, you know, that provided you, a, it seemed to provide you with with quite a good background or foundation, if you like, even though you went on to expand them as a consequence of some of your other research that you did. Yes, I know it's dusting off the dissertation that you did a number of, well, I don't know how many months ago now, <laughs> so I'm testing your, your memory on this. But um, I wonder if you could, yeah, it would be interesting, I think, just to talk about on the academic side, you know who influenced your thinking. Perhaps you could share a little bit more on this um, of, of, yeah. of these factors. And then, secondly, to your point about, of course, the you know, how did you start to select the people that you wanted to be part of your qualitative research approach uh, with the eight people that, that I think you chose? So, shall we start with the academic?
1: Yeah, let's start with the academic. The the pro was. Definitely the lead academic research paper that I felt matched up with what I was looking for specifically. Prole had five specific factors that influenced across functional team leads' ability to lead and to, to have the team perform and ch- the 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 first factor was member, membership of the team is critical. So having functional representation, having open-minded, highly motivated members, representation from end users, if it, if that was the case, if they were using particular technology or or some outcome from what you were leading, and um, the that's that's key. That's no doubt a key. It was it was a framework that I think all of us can agree on that you want to have. Highly motivated, engaged people, people that are coming from different perspectives, a diverse representation of all different types of people. Uh, the second factor that Prol really talked about was having a, a skilled uh, team member, uh, people with the right skill sets on the team, not only diverse and open-minded, but they have to have a, a, a particular team member with a, in a position of authority as well. Mm-hmm. so skill sets mindset and then you need to have somebody that has authority and some i would call it executive presence <laughs> i don't know if it's a really executive presence but it's somebody with authority and the account- accountability to to help push the task forward mm-hmm. uh, the the third the, the fourth factor is uh, i talked about the 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 first and second but if i look at the third factor with pro um it says the team must have both the authority and the accountability to accomplish its tasks. So uh, I wholeheartedly agree with this. The, the fact is if you don't have the authority, you're not going to be able to really, you're going to be able to bring an idea forward. You're going to be able to outline and lay out what you want to accomplish, but if there's no budget behind it, no capability to execute, it's a no brainer that this is not going to work. The fourth fact. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Mm. And uh, matter of fact, all five factors are, are excellent and uh, provide a great foundation for anybody who's looking to lead cross-functional mm. teams. There are also factor four is there must be management support and adequate resources for the team. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree there. You, you have to have an executive sponsor who's going to make sure that they support the experience of the project leader They contribute to the performance. They give feedback and or guidance. And it doesn't have to be in a mentor role, but also some way to uh, make sure that there's adequate resources that are, that are provided that the stakeholders that are maybe second, third level out, or I would say circle out (laughs) Um, there, they need to be informed. And so there's, there's air cover there. From the executive sponsor as well. Could I ask
0: another question on that topic, which is to do with, it talks about adequate resources for the team, which I, I guess could be budgetary as well. But how do you, on the budgetary side of things, you know, how do you, maybe it's a terribly simple thing for SAP to do, but I would imagine it's, you know, how do you set budget? How do you get budget? Is, is this something that's preset and you've got a budget to do something. Um, is it divided globally amongst the different operating companies you know, of the organization for whom you work? I mean, how do you deal with the budgetary side of things?
1: Well, in my, in my um, research and in my personal experience, there's some different ways to, to a, acquire budget or use budget typically different departments or executive sponsors will utilize a pot of money that was given for a specific initiative by a higher level authority. Sometimes budgets are bottom up and you get approvals by the higher level authority. But in this particular case with cross-functional teams, often you're not using a specific budget that was set aside at the beginning of the year um, that is, Uh, in concrete that you use X number of dollars or euros to complete this particular task. It's much more agile than that. Usually in nature it's what is the business case? What is the return on investment? How can we use this to achieve our particular goals? And then who has skin in the game? So typically um, if you're a particular executive sponsor for a project, you want to make sure that there's budget involved. You want to make sure that everybody that has skin in the game, whether it's the sales team or for a particular region, a product marketing group and an industry group that they all either contribute to the budget or have some type of say as to what the budget will look like. Uh, so for instance, if you're doing a go to market campaign that will affect the U S Australia and Germany, for instance, you're going to want to make sure the general manager for that particular sales group is signed off, but also may provide small amounts of budget just to show that they're going to be uh, part of the team and not just uh, if, if, so for instance, if I talk to the, the sales lead in Australia and say, Hey, I'm doing something around this particular go to market campaign to help your sales group. Oh, that's fine. Keep going. That's typically doesn't enable or get that team engaged. What what I find is, okay, we're, we may have a $20,000 or $50,000 budget. Within that $50,000, our core budget, our core marketing team, or, or go-to-market demand management team will give you $25,000. But we want to run this through your particular market unit. Are you willing to put $10,000 uh, in addition to that, so that your team has buy-in? And on top of that, are you willing to give a percent of, that, of your particular marketing uh, unit lead as part of the extended team? And also, will you commit to uh, helping enable your particular sales members on your, in your particular region to utilize this campaign along with the market manager? So it's, it's a budget connection to help them get a little bit more engaged to see how serious they are, but also for the not only for the creation and the build part of the demand manager campaign, but the run part of the campaign. So everybody has skin in the game and they're accountable.
0: Well, that's great. I'm sorry, it's probably a bit, a bit of detail there, which actually I found very interesting, but I, I can see how that is a very good way of getting, as you say, buy-in you know, to that sort of guiding coalition that you also, I think you referred to that also in your research. Um, uh, So we've
1: done four factors. The fifth factor? fifth factor, adequate internal and external communications. Uh, I know you, Phil, have probably seen communications that were overdone, daily communications via email, updates, they're... Flooding you, long, long drawn out emails that you prefer not to read yeah. <laughs> in, in full. So a, the communications aspect of this can't be understated because as you build and you run this particular go-to-market campaign along with the sales and marketing as a, a cross-functional team and maybe even services and other interested parties, they're stakeholders at different levels and have different... Needs so an executive stakeholder doesn't want to see the the, uh, the full breadth of activity, but rather see the return on investment, the main issues, and the main uh, outcomes.
0: Yes, I love the I love the quote. I wonder if I could just draw it out from your your paper. I think it was um, according to the results of a study by Patriskova Voldovska et al. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a consistent curvilinear relationship between email and team performance. They state that email should be used with constraint to avoid information overload, uh, since everyone on a cross-functional team can write emails whenever and where at, and at whatever length they want. And they found that combining frequent team meetings with a high frequency of cross-functional communication appears to be the most conducive to team performance. And I know that some of your research goes into this topic uh, later, which I'd like to come on to. So that's the fifth factor. But I think that, um, I think that during the course of your research study, um, and perhaps through the process of the qualitative research you did, uh, you began to identify other factors that you felt were, were fairly critical. Um, as well. So I wonder if you can share, first of all, how you went about selecting um, the practitioners, if you like, that formed part of your research inquiry as well. So we've covered a bit, you know, the reading and some of the key influences there. But how do you select the, um, the team of people that you engaged with to further your inquiry?
1: Yeah, so I had mentioned that I wanted to interview certain people that I thought were exemplars of cross functional team leadership. Uh, And some of them, what I would do, what I did was I started out with a list of uh, many over the years that I had worked with and started thinking about some of the interactions and outcomes and some of the qualities that I would want to, that I would thought would want to be emulated by a cross functional team lead. But, also, when I started talking to these different people and giving and giving them an idea of where I was going with this particular research or or the topic, before I interviewed anybody, I also surveyed lots of different people across the, the organization that I was working with s a p to find other exemplars that i wasn 't aware of. so as I expanded out, um, then I picked a top 10, if you will, of different folks. And I would say uh, several of those folks that I ended up picking were admired by many, but I didn't have a personal relationship with, Mm. or had not worked personally with. So, but I had received kudos uh, and contextual descriptions of how they lead from others where uh, it piqued my interest that I would want to talk with them.
0: But I know that, I think, was it three of those that you reached out to that you didn't have a relationship, didn't respond, but you, <laughs> used, uh, you used some word of mouth, I think, uh, recommendations from some of those that did respond and uh, built up your list of interviewees that way.
1: Yes. Sometimes it's interesting. They, they, it gives you a little bit of idea about some of those leaders that you reach out to that don't even respond back on email and makes you wonder why they couldn't take, two, three seconds to say, no, not, not interested. Yeah. Or <laughs> I go into that, into the paper. Or there's some reasoning behind it possibly, but again, if they're not, if they're not willing to give the time and put some um, and engage, then you have to move on. But it was interesting. The ones that I didn't know, the, uh, obviously it's pr- pretty much just don't take it personally and you move on to try to learn from others. Mm.
0: Well, it also highlights the importance of relationships and and so on which which are, again is important in these cross-functional teams. Okay, so um, yeah, so you chose, I think you had eight people, is that right? Uh, That's that formed the basis and you, I know that you've, you've identified a list of questions that you wanted to ask them but I don't think we need necessarily to go into those in detail. I think what's what's really interesting is to look at the process that you went through. Cause I imagine you had quite a lot of data, you know, from interviewing eight people yeah. and I was really, actually, I really loved reading uh, the bit in your research about how you started to make sense of the information that you were getting from them and how you sort of categorized words and then built them into themes. So I wonder if you could just talk through how you then started to make sense of the data. You also draw out a great quote, which is a head full of theories and case full of data does not automatically result in high quality work. I thought that was a brilliant phrase that you had at the beginning of your dissertation that talks about analyzing evidence from the data. Um, But then when you started to go into how you started to process the information, I thought it was really interesting how you did that. So I wonder if you can just talk through, you know, how you went about it
1: yeah it's interesting because um, I'm interested actually even to even do further interviews at this point because I'm continuing to learn more and and develop my own personal style but when you you're trying to throw away pre-conserve, uh preconceived notions you have to somehow put it into a, a uh, some type of method you have to utilize some type of methodology to try to take the subjectivity out of it so as you're interviewing, uh, of course, you want to keep, I, I kept all the the data separate from each interview, did not look back at the other answers because I didn't want to influence the new interviewee. But once you collect that, then you have to really start thinking about, well, how, how, do, how does this work? How, and now how do I, I think I know what those qualities are or the actions that a cross functional team lead needs. But now that I've gotten all these interviews, is there something I need to gleam out of here that um, I didn't really see it at first? So then I started going through uh, the different interviews and I highlighted them in different colors, the content in different colors, as to negative behaviors or ne- actions that produce negative consequences that I saw in quotes from the interviewee, neutral, positive advice. So I color coded all kinds of different um, things. I also separately, in uh, a couple different spreadsheets, one Excel spreadsheet, I put in a list of 35 or 40 different behaviors that I uh, heard in the interviews and read in the research, looked at the interviewees' quotes, put them in against those particular uh, behaviors, and saw if there was different, uh, how many different people commented on that particular behavior, what was their description of that behavior on a contextual uh, basis, and then was that really something that was repeated over eight interviews or was that also, um, as part, a part of the research. So then I went back to the literature research and I also took the quotes from the literature research and put them into those 40 or, or, uh, or so behaviors and actions. And you start seeing different patterns. Uh, when you also, uh, what I also did is I also took the eight questions that I had, uh, corresponding to the eight interviewees and put in another matrix where I put in the question, the interviewee, the question number, the, the question type. What, what was the question? What was the response? And I also did uh, some type of uh, color coding there where I saw uh, where there was like answers, where there was disparities, where there was gaps in the answers. And so that way I looked at it in, in three or four different uh, ways. And every time I cross analyzed all those different um ways that I floated the data up and and surfaced the different contexts of that data. I was able to then contract the specific behaviors into more themes, thematic behaviors, contract the actions more into a thematic set of actions. And also it changed the way I looked at some of these actions and the way I I looked at some of these behaviors, because when you start putting uh, these things in different ways, you start seeing different patterns that you never in correlations that you never would have seen before.
0: Yeah. I love the way you talked about it in your, in your research study. And I have to say, I empathized with it because I, I went through two years of my, my doctorate looking at data and getting nowhere with it. And it wasn't until I started to recalibrate the data and look at, look at it in, in a different way. that I that, one had the breakthrough but it's a wonderful process isn't it when you start to see shapes and new ideas emerging that perhaps you didn't expect before and it it then becomes exciting you know we're breaking new ground we're we're seeing new patterns so could you tell me what perhaps some of the uh you know what some of the surprises were for you or some of the words that surfaced that you hadn't uh, come across perhaps in your literature and research Ooh,
1: that's a really interesting question i have to really reach back uh, well let, let's start with uh, let's well let me see let me think about this because when you're a, a cross-functional team lead a manager a leader you know if you've gone through a master's program or academia or you are you're um just a a grade school graduate and never even went to college, you know, there's certain things that, um, you seem to to seem just natural to some and not natural to others, but whenever you're talking to others, uh, you always want to understand the why behind things. The why is the hardest thing to agree on or to communicate on. So if you're doing a uh, particular, if you're doing a particular, uh, Demand management campaign. And you don't explain why, what you think the return on investment is, what you, why is it important for you as an individual team member to participate in this project? Why is this, why must we take the time um, to, to do this? Why must we take the time to get buy-in or help drive the project forward? Or why do we need to have the executive sponsor be involved? The why the word why was came up in, in as a thread and it doesn't matter what the project is that is more important than the what and that is a key factor yeah
0: you make reference to simon sinek you know i think in your (laughs) project as well when you talk about the why we're doing it you know at a superficial level you've got thing you know because we want to grow sales we want to do this or x number of leads In your sense, does the why go deeper than that in terms of getting support from the team? Is there there a sense of purpose that just goes beyond the number that you think contributes to the way in which a group responds
1: cross-functionally? I'm going to get a little um, philosophical here. (laughs) Good. Uh, I like that. (laughs) As a cross-functional team lead, you want to come out with a crystal clear purpose that everybody can agree on, and you it, it hopefully gives everybody it gets everybody motivated in some way. But in the reality, that purpose is good on paper. Sometimes may not be good for the individual. There's a dimension of power. There's a dimension of of uh, of different key performance indicators that different individual team members may have. So they may not be going towards the same purpose. Uh, They may agree on it on the surface, but you really need to get down with each team member to discuss not only the, that clear purpose and crystal clear purpose at the the start, but mutually agree that, um, not only do we want to accomplish this because of this particular purpose, but what do you as an individual team member want to get out of this? And and it, it may not be that specific question directly asked to them, but you, you as a cross team leader want to find out from each of the individuals, what is driving them? What is their, why, why are they participating or why are they not participating and try to find a, a way to mutually agree on a path forward that they can participate and they're going to get some uh, of their, their personal return on, on investment out of it. Hmm. So
0: so the why question for you was something that, that kind of came out of a lot of the interviews that you did, the importance of it. And uh, I think that that probably then requires quite a lot of Soft skill, in a sense, you know, emotional intelligence to be able to work with these teams. You don't have much of a relationship with them, perhaps proximity, you're working in different geographic areas. So I think it's something again that you mentioned the kind of importance of some of the softer skills for making a cross functional team work well.
1: Absolutely. I think most of the behaviors are. Uh, you, what was the book everything I learned I, I needed to learn I learned in kindergarten yeah. most of these if you really floated down into their base the base behaviors a lot of it is mutual respect giving being cl- inclusive listening uh, bouncing ideas off other people giving them time to talk things out leaving room for mistakes a lot of these behaviors if you would think uh, if you go back to the, that, that particular book or your particular basic lessons come out or are drawn out in this research because of the fact that in the end, there's, there's, there's certain, certain things. But if you don't practice those things, then they're not natural to you as a person because you learn over the years as you go through your career that you you may put up walls, you may have insecurities, you may have limiting beliefs, or or your values may have change a bit because you're trying to either protect yourself or you're trying to play the political game within an organization. And that leads you away from some of these behaviors. Mm.
0: There was one of the words you've just mentioned there, which is to do with risk, you know, make allowances for failure. And it's a topic which I believe is hugely important, providing that sort of psychological safety net for people to feel that if they do make a mistake, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. And, it, and in fact, it's a prerequisite for innovation. <laughs> did, did you ever come across in your research, the work that Google have done with their Aristotle project at all? It may have been published after you did your research. I'm not sure.
1: I think that was published after I did my research. Actually.
0: Yeah, but it's, it's about, um, it was across every function and they were looking at what are the factors for, it wasn't, on team performance mm. and this topic of psychological safety came out as the most important factor So yes. So it's it's I mean I've learned probably perhaps a bit like you but I've certainly learned more from failure than I have from success because it hurts when you don't get things right all the time but yeah so that's really interesting to hear you listing those, those skills. So if we can, if, if you start to reflect back on the interviews you, you, you did, the research that you did, um, what were the, you know, if you were to define the main sort of conclusions from your research, Yeah, um, is, would you mind do, doing that? How did you synthesize all this information into the actions that you think that one could take? Because you talked about this artifact, giving people a toolkit, a checklist. So I imagine you've done quite a lot of work around that
1: yeah and so for anybody who's listening i will send you the checklist if you're interested but there's seven actions. (laughs) i would (laughs) love it (laughs) myself okay yeah Yeah, let's just start with the 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 actions if you're if you're starting to uh create a team or if you're been assigned as a cross-functional team lead make sure you have a a proactive executive sponsor somebody who's going to support your particular project, somebody's going to help. And and there's context underneath that. Make sure you recruit a functionally diverse team. You need to have people from different vantage points and different perspectives to be able to really truly give you a holistic understanding of what needs to be done and how it can be done. Collaborate with each stakeholder about the why and, and why they should play a part. And then uh, importantly, from that particular team member, you need to gain support from that team member's manager. The team member can't just be working on a particular project or a program or initiative without giving the, the manager the the say as to the percent of time and their support. Uh, you also need to agree on a unified vision and purpose with the team. Again, not uh, from what I said earlier, not everybody's going to Truly 100% engaged just because you have a vision and purpose. It has to go down to the why as well, but you need to have a unified vision and purpose with the team set out at the beginning and establish measurable individual and team objectives so that everybody's striving towards that. And then of course, you need to create a flawless and flawlessly execute a communication plan. You need to understand who your stakeholders are, how often you might want to communicate with them and when and how.
0: when you, mm-hmm i oh, sorry, I was just going to ask about the communication plan, because I, it was very interesting how some of your interviewees were quite specific about how often do they set up meetings. And yet there's also some sensitivity to, with frequency yes. um, as well. So I guess there is also a tension between, I don't <laughs> know if it's a tension, it's a balance, isn't it? Between how much do you need to communicate so you don't overload people? and how much you do. So I, I, I don't know how you, you get to that point.
1: That's a, not an exact science. That's when you start talking, talking about uh, when you start thinking about the, 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 culture within a company and the highest paid person in the room that wants to be communicated with and how often sometimes it's dictated to you in certain, in certain aspects. That's a-
0: okay. So
1: that's part of the, yeah,
0: the, I guess each team is going to be slightly different. And as you say, whilst you talk about teams you also talk about one-on-one communication you know the importance of actually having one-on-one conversations with uh with people as well that's correct
1: yeah a lot of a lot of one-to-one communication but you don't want to overflow the person or overload the person i should say uh you want to make sure that that's the right level as well and and of course it goes to their personality i
0: i have one further question one last question to ask you which is as a consequence of what you've done, and this is very much about building your personal practice, have you seen the way in which you've worked with cross cultural teams, temporal teams? Has it become, have you become more effective, would you say, based on the learnings you've had using the principles that you've now defined as being important?
1: Well, (laughs) let me answer it in two different ways. One is I feel personally more effective. And I feel like the outcomes have become better, but to truly be accountable, you would wanna ask all the people that I've led since then. I've led some, some large projects since then. I've had a lot of good feedback, but you would have to ask them. But, okay. <laughs> um, but I, yes, the answer is yes. I feel much more comfortable as a cross-functional team lead that if I'm hitting these seven actions and the seven behaviors, the, what I talk about um, on the behaviors being trustworthy, honest, respectful, and authentic, Strive to be collaborative, move, remove your power balances, imbalances, be inclusive, practice staying in the moment, engage during meetings, which, which is something that we need today more than ever with uh, remote work. Lead with empathy and practice, uh, be transparent, and accountable, and show your appreciation. If I hit these 14 uh, actions and behaviors and I go back and I'm truly honest with myself, uh, the, the the outcomes have been better uh, across the board
0: well brilliant dante and congratulations on um you know on your research project and thanks so much for taking part can i just thank you for your time and i know you've got this other call to go on so i don't want to hold you back but well, it's wonderful seeing you again i have to say
1: <laughs> it was awesome seeing you phil you're you're somebody i respect immensely you have oh. uh multiple talents that you're sharing with the world and you're helping uh, the world become a better place. You're also making sure that, um, the, the career of a salesperson is, uh, being evolved is you're helping it evolve in a way that it needs to evolve. And so I'm I'm thankful that uh, I was able to give a chance to talk to you today.
0: Oh, well, any time, you know, I would love this being able to reconnect with, you know, with as many people as I can. And uh, um, I could spend all my time interviewing, you know, the students who've been through the program because it's awesome. You know what everyone's achieved. <laughs> so oh, so for me, it's just wonderful to reconnect. So what's your selling approach like? Are you selling in a way that your customers want to be sold to? From our research, only 10 percent of salespeople sell in a way that customers want. what do customers want when they're being sold to it's no secret that here at consalia we've embedded the sales values and mindsets that customers want to see in salespeople into everything we do from our sales business school through to our sales transformation offering so how do you know whether or not you've got them we have a very simple mindset survey to see if you possess these key values it's really straightforward to use will only take a few minutes to complete And you'll be sent your results straight after. You may be just a bit surprised at the results yourself. Check out the show notes at the end of this podcast episode. What you do with the results next is your choice. We're happy to dive deeper into these results to discuss what they mean or even explore the idea of finding out if your customers see these key
1: values in your approach.